Please take out your copy of the scriptures. Turn to Luke chapter 10. We continue this morning in our study through the gospel of Luke. We come today to the short narrative at the end of chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 38 through 42. Let me start by reading our text. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Hear the word that God has for you today. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. You might be familiar with how the Apostle John ends his gospel uh, with the statement that if all the many other things that Jesus did were written down, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Basically, the material on Jesus' life that the gospel writers carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, that they chose to include in their writings, was only a fraction of what they potentially could have written. And think about Luke's purpose for writing his gospel. He's trying to write an orderly account. And so his gospel consists of a very carefully and intentionally chosen set of narratives, stories, and teachings. I say all that because here we have a seemingly very ordinary scene. There are no miracles here. There's no signs and wonders here. There's nothing even remotely supernatural like all the stuff about casting out demons from earlier in the chapter. There is no public teaching here. There's no famous parables like the previous text. There's no confrontation with his enemies who are eventually going to put him to death, something that's going to characterize much of the chapters to come. No, what we have here is a very short five-verse narrative with only three characters, two of whom speak. And each of those two speaks only one line. And this all takes place in the private setting of the confines of someone's home in the unspectacular and seemingly ordinary context of everyday hospitality. And so at face value, maybe this looks like an insignificant story. Let's just get to the good stuff. Let's get to the the battles with the Pharisees in chapter 11 and the parables of chapter 12 and the healing miracle in chapter 13. But that's where we need to remember that Luke, and for that matter, the Holy Spirit, doesn't waste words. If this story is here in God's word, and it is, well, as plain and ordinary and unspectacular as it may seem, This is exactly what you and I need to hear. And so, let's go to our text now. 
We'll use a a simple three-point outline that will follow our three characters so that we can kind of navigate our way through the story. Uh, Point number one will be Martha's distraction. Point number two will be Jesus' rebuke. And then point number three will be Mary's choice. But before we get to that, Luke first sets the scene for us. So look at verse 38. Uh, Now as they went on their way, Now, if you remember back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, remember that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this entire kind of broader section of the gospel, from that verse in chapter 9 all the way to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 19, like everything that happens in between happens on the road to Jerusalem. That line, as they went on their way, reminds us of that fact. But it also reminds us of something else from earlier in this chapter, chapter 10. You remember how Jesus sent out the 72? And how he tells them that as they go from town to town, some people would reject them, while others would receive them. For those that would reject them, and thus reject the message that the kingdom of God is near, well, the 72 were to wipe the dust off their feet as... Uh, pronouncement of judgment on those people, but there would also be those who would receive them, uh, thus accept their message that the kingdom of God has come near. And one of the ways in which those sons of peace would express that acceptance would be by welcoming them into their homes through hospitality. Remember verses 7 and 8? Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, or that's hospitality, For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house whenever you enter a town and they receive you. Again, that's hospitality. Eat what is set before you. And so it's with that contrast in our minds. That contrast between people who reject them and then people who receive them by showing hospitality. That's the context in which we should read verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So in a climate in which many rejected Jesus, Martha, we're told, welcomed him. Chorazin rejected Jesus. Bethsaida rejected Jesus. Capernaum rejected Jesus. But Martha, she receives Jesus. Sometimes Martha gets kind of a bad rap because of the story that we're about to cover. And we'll get to some of her faults later. But we need to remember throughout this story that Martha loves Jesus. And not only is she specifically mentioned as welcoming Jesus in, but look at how she addresses him in verse 40. She calls him Lord We have seen the significance of that title in this gospel, right? Lord, kurios, a title of deity, a title of sovereignty, a title of worship. It's a title that proclaims him as the Messiah. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's a word that very significantly comes up in our text from last time. Because the great commandment is you shall love the Lord, your God. Kurios, 
because that's how the name Yahweh was translated into Greek. And so Martha here is ascribing to Jesus all of those things in calling him Lord. And even more importantly, even more important than the fact that Martha loves Jesus is the fact that Jesus loves Martha. Very plain language, John eleven five. Now, Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus, that's their brother, who doesn't appear at all in our story. And so before we say anything else about Martha and Mary, before we compare and contrast them, we need to recognize that these two sisters have a lot more in common than different. They're both bought by the blood of Christ. They're both true disciples of Jesus. They're both going to spend an eternity with him in heaven. They both love Jesus. And more importantly, Jesus loves both of them. If we forget that, we can read this story as the difference between two sisters, one of whom loves Jesus and one of whom doesn't. And you say, look at how the sister who loves Jesus, well, she sits listening to him while the one who doesn't love Jesus is too busy perfecting her apricot chutney or whatever. But that's not accurate. Because Martha loves Jesus. And she demonstrates that love for him. Faith without works is dead. She demonstrates that love for him by receiving Jesus, by welcoming him, by showing him hospitality. The idea of hospitality as an expression of love that's all over the Bible, from Genesis to David to the New Testament epistles. Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. Seek to show hospitality. That's exactly what Martha is doing here. But that now brings us to point number one. This is where our story really begins with Martha's distraction. Because there's a problem here. Again, the problem is not the hospitality in itself. Hospitality is a good thing. Hospitality is an expression of love. It is not in the serving itself. Again, serving is a good thing. And serving can be an expression of love. The problem, we'll look at Luke's words. The problem, verse 40, is that Martha is distracted with much serving. Distracted, uh, that word literally means dragged around. And so you can imagine like serving has her on a chain. It's just kind of dragging her from here to there. Uh, The picture is that serving has so consumed her and and so burdened her that even though she does want to spend time with her guest, serving just kind of pulls her right back into the kitchen. Serving has become her number one priority. Now, why is she so distracted? Well, maybe she just feels overwhelmed by the sheer number of guests that they have. Because remember, Jesus is not traveling alone. You see in verse 38, the plural they. The they is going to kind of fade into the background in this narrative, but the disciples are still there. There's at least 12 of them, maybe more, who are traveling with the group. And so this is not like one guy coming over and we need to set aside an extra portion of dinner for him. This is a a whole entourage coming through. 
This is 13 plus tired and hungry travelers. Or maybe it's that she feels some kind of pressure here. Because in this particular case, this isn't just hospitality in general. This isn't even entertaining angels unawares. This is literally entertaining the Lord of the universe. Or maybe, maybe she felt like she had to impress her guests. I got some important guests coming around. Yeah, maybe the the food is already prepared, but I've got to go over the top here. Maybe some old-fashioned perfectionism mixed in. Like everything has to be just perfect. Ultimately, we don't know the cause because Luke doesn't tell us. But Luke does tell us. If you can look ahead to verse 41 for a second. He does tell us Jesus' assessment of her heart in the midst of all of this busyness All of it has caused her to be anxious and troubled. And isn't it true? Do we not know this from personal experience? That when we're anxious and troubled about something, that rarely do those emotions just remain quiet and hidden in our hearts. Rather, it's kind of like what Jesus said. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks And so out of the abundance of the anxiety and the trouble in her heart, uh, Martha speaks here, and the product, as you might have guessed, well, it's it's not good. It's a quick application here. It is always true. It is always true that James chapter 1, we ought to be slow to speak. It is always true, like a general principle of life, uh, Proverbs ten nineteen. when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. That is a general principle of life. But that principle is particularly true when we're anxious, when we're troubled about something, when something is dragging us around, when something is weighing heavy on us, like especially in those cases. When we are tempted in our anxiety, in our trouble, to give full vent to our spirit, well, the fruit of the spirit is self-control. And we need grace to exercise that self-control, lest we say something that we'll later regret. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. But Martha here, it seems, gives vent to her anxious and troubled spirit. And so, verse 40, she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. That's probably one that Martha wishes she could have back. I mean, notice how she makes this entire situation about her. Like, everybody's got to accommodate her. You just see all the me's in that statement. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me, right? It's me, me, me. It's all about me. Mary needs to stop worshiping and come help me. And Jesus, you need to stop everything that you're doing and tell Mary to come and help me. So even as she addresses him as Lord here? 
Like even as she verbally confesses that Jesus is the God of the universe from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, well, she seems to be much more concerned, at least in this moment, about herself. And not your will, but mine be done. But there's another huge problem with what she says here, and it's somewhat subtly stated, but at the same time, uh, you can't miss it. Look at the first four words that come out of her mouth after she addresses him as the Lord. Do you not care? You see that? And she basically accuses Jesus of not caring about her. She feels anxious about serving. She feels troubled about hospitality. Meanwhile, Jesus is teaching and instructing the crowd, including her sister, who she thinks ought to be helping her. And her conclusion is that Jesus doesn't care about her. I wonder if we've ever had similar thoughts. Maybe for you, serving and hospitality that doesn't really cause you much anxiety or trouble, either because you don't do it, which is entirely another issue, or because it's something that just is naturally fun and enjoyable and joyful for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your job or your school or your family or your home or your station in life or whatever it may be that causes you that tempts you to be anxious and troubled. But whatever the potential source, well, this is one of the great lies that our anxiety, that our anxious hearts can feed us, that whatever situation you're in that's causing you to be anxious, that that situation is, in itself, a sign that God doesn't care for you. And then our thoughts may begin to run wild. Even if we might not verbalize it like Martha does here, we think, if, if God cared about me, then he would have, or if God cared about me, then he wouldn't let this or that happen to me. Lord, do you not care? And we might even have all kinds of solutions in mind, like ways that God can redeem himself by showing us that he actually does care for us. God, if you care about me, then you will. Which is basically what Martha does here. Lord, if you care about me, tell her then to help me. Unless we pick on Martha here. You have to wonder if the disciples, remember the disciples are there. The twelve are there. If they're overhearing this interaction and if when they hear Martha's question, well, they remember that they too once had very similar doubts in their anxieties. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. This is right before Jesus miraculously calms the storm. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Friends, if we're honest, I think many of us have experienced similar thoughts at times. 
in our anxieties and the troubles of life. Lord, do you not care? Lord, do you not care that this disease is destroying my body? Lord, do you not care that I am so crushed in my spirit? Do you not care about my singleness or my childlessness or my widowhood or my loneliness? Do you not care that I am going through a really, really hard season? But brothers and sisters, this is where we who are Christians, we need to think rightly. We need to allow what we know to be true about God and his love for us to triumph over any sinful, unbiblical thoughts that we might have about God not caring for us. For he has demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt that he cares for us. God shows, he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest, like it was made clear to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might have life through him. So John says, see, like behold, hey, look at this, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. At the end of the day, yes, he may grant you to suffer through trials and difficulties in this season, but looking at the cross where he gave his son for us, can we not trust him that he will see us through these trials and difficulties in his fatherly care for our good and for his glory? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. I know my Savior cares. And as a matter of fact, like in our anxieties, in our troubles, he cares for us so much that he even invites us to cast those very anxieties on him. 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Lord, do you not care? Oh, Martha, Martha, and you, dear friends, he cares for you. Point number one, Martha's distraction. Which brings us now to point number two, Jesus' rebuke. The Proverbs tell us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, if that's true of rebukes that come from imperfect friends, well, how much more true is it of rebukes that come from the perfect Savior? So here Jesus delivers a, a faithful wound, a tender rebuke to one whom he loves. This is not a rebuke of condemnation. This is not judgment upon his enemy. Because remember, John eleven five, Jesus loved Martha. This is loving discipline for God's child. Martha, Martha, like you can almost hear the compassion. Martha, Martha, you are anxious 
and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And just think about what a loving rebuke this is. Because Jesus could have just said, well, Martha, I said it was okay for Mary to sit here. So don't you mind about her. At which point the conversation is basically over. And presumably at some point Martha realizes that this is the Lord of the universe speaking to me. Like this conversation is over. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? But Jesus doesn't do that. Right? Instead, he reveals to her her heart. He shows her where the problem really lies. The problem is your anxiety. The problem is your troubled heart. The problem is that in your anxiety and your trouble, your focus and your priority is on many things. The, the food, the hospitality, the decor, the serving. But not on the one thing that's necessary. Which is to worship me by hearing my word. And Martha's focus is so thrown off from that one thing. To use Luke's language, she's been so distracted from that one thing that she's even become critical towards others who have correctly chosen that one thing, like her sister Mary. And Martha's focus is so thrown off from that one thing that in her frustration, she interrupts the worship of Jesus through hearing his word to vent her frustrations. Martha's focus is so thrown off from that one thing that in her self-pity, she accuses her Savior the one who is going to go to die for her, of not caring for her. Martha, Martha, do you see the danger? Do you remember how Jesus once told of a seed that fell amongst thorns? Luke eight fourteen. They are choked by the cares, and that's the same word that Jesus uses here for anxious. Martha, Martha, you are anxious. They are choked by the cares, the anxieties, the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Martha, Martha, your anxieties are not just a harmless personality quirk. They threaten to kill your soul like thorns. And so Jesus gently but firmly rebukes Martha. He brings the straying sheep back into the fold. Point number two, Jesus' rebuke. Now here's the thing about rebuke. Rebuke, like in the moment, it's not fun. And nobody likes having their sinful heart exposed. Nobody likes being corrected. But when a rebuke is received, when it leads to a godly grief that produces repentance, not only is that the grace of God at work in the life of his child, it's also a cause for great rejoicing. This is why I said earlier that it's so important for us to keep in mind that Jesus loves Martha. That Martha is a true child of God. Because the scriptures tell us, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's Martha. For the moment, Hebrews tells us, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
And surely this rebuke from Jesus in that moment must have stung Martha. But later, Hebrews promises, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Well, did it? Did it later yield the fruit of righteousness? Like, does Martha, as a result of this loving discipline, grow in her understanding of the priority of the worship of Jesus? Well, well, we're not told what happens as a result of this narrative. Because sneaky Luke is up to his old tricks again, intentionally leaving his narratives with some unresolved tension. But we do know. Because John records it for us in his gospel, we do know that later on, this same Martha who's rebuked here would go on to make one of the greatest and most worshipful statements about Jesus recorded anywhere. Right before Jesus would raise her brother Lazarus from the dead, this is John 11, that Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she, Martha, said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let me talk about redemption. You talk about yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness from a rebuke. You talk about being able to demonstrate your love for Jesus in worship. Like that's, that's as good as it gets. Point number two, Jesus' rebuke. That brings us now to point number three, Mary's choice. A look again at Jesus' words. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary has chosen the one thing that's necessary. Referring back to her choice in verse 39, where we're told that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Sitting at someone's feet was a common expression back then. Because students would sit at the feet of their teachers to learn from them. Uh, This is way before the printing press. This is way before YouTube. Like the primary way that people learned things was through oral instruction from teachers. And so the Apostle Paul describes himself as educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That means that he was Gamaliel's disciple. And so Mary sits at Jesus' feet in order to hear his teaching. Now that would have been surprising, countercultural back then. And most rabbis would never teach a woman or have a, a woman among his followers. But that shouldn't surprise us as readers of Luke's gospel because we already know that, remember the beginning of chapter 8, we already know that women frequently accompanied him in his ministry. And so the point here isn't so much that Mary is a woman— The point is that she has chosen the one necessary thing. She has chosen the good portion. Because Mary, 
In contrast to her sister, who is anxious and troubled about many things, who is distracted and dragged around by much serving, well, Mary has chosen to simply sit and listen to her Lord. And so she exemplifies what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. We've already seen in this gospel, especially in recent chapters, we've seen over and over the importance of hearing hearing God's word. The parable of the sower. What's the point of that parable? Well, the point is that not everyone who hears the word is actually hearing the word. And so he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the good soil, right, represents those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. What about the transfiguration? Remember chapter 9. What is the takeaway for the disciples from that experience on that mountain? Well, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And you'll remember what Luke said, rather what Jesus said in Luke 8, 21. My brother and my mother are those who hear the word of God and do it. So you see, Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary has exemplified what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus because she is one who sits and wholeheartedly hears Jesus' word. And that choice, Jesus says, that portion, worshiping Jesus by hearing his word, that will not be taken away from her. That is true in an immediate sense. Like, she's not going to be forced to stop listening. But you see, it's also true in a greater sense. Right? Because in her worship, well, she is laying up for herself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, which is what Mary has committed herself to here, what she has chosen the word of the Lord remains forever. It will not be taken away. Point number three, Mary's choice. So that's five verses, uh, three characters, and three points. Martha's distraction, Jesus' rebuke, Mary's choice. And let me leave you now with two takeaways. Takeaway number one, is to look to Christ. We spoke earlier about anxieties and troubles, how we who are in Christ must continue, like in the face of those anxieties and troubles, to trust in his care. But I realize that some of you who are gathered here today, you are not a Christian. You are not saved. Your sins are not forgiven. Well, for you... The anxieties and the troubles of your life, uh, they can be a very helpful reminder of the fact that you have something much more anxiety-producing, something eternally troubling that is still awaiting you in the future, which is the judgment for your sins. A judgment that you will enter into upon death, for it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment— a judgment that will culminate for you in an eternity in hell where you will suffer the wrath of God for every single sin that you have ever committed. 
And so I implore you, takeaway number one, to look to Christ. Because the same Jesus of this seemingly insignificant and unspectacular story that we've covered today would go on to do the most significant and most spectacular thing ever. He would, as the perfect son of God, who knew no sin, he would go to the cross, taking upon himself the sins of his people to die in the place of sinners like you and like me. Only to rise again in victory three days later, showing his power over sin, showing his power over death, so that whoever believes in him, whoever places their trust in his death and his resurrection, might be saved. So all of those assurances of God's love that I mentioned earlier, if you are not in Christ, those are not yours yet. But if you would repent of your sins and believe in him, well, you too can know that love, that care that God has shown his people in Christ even today. And so, takeaway number one, Look to Christ. Takeaway number two, assess your life's priority. Now I'm speaking specifically to the Christians in the room. I'm speaking specifically to myself. We need to assess our life's priority. Because you know how it is. You know how many things, right? Many things can vie for our attention. Our jobs and our marriages, our friends, our families, our children, our ministries, taking care of our homes and managing our finances and fulfilling our commitments and being good stewards of our bodies and getting regular sleep and eating well and making sure that the trash is taken out and not leaving our socks on the floor and and so on and so on, right? There are literally a million things vying for our attention. And all of those things are important. I'm not trying to uh, minimize or trivialize any of those things. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this narrative calls us to ask ourselves, what is my life's priority? Mary's example And Jesus' commendation of her example reminds us that the one thing, the one thing that is most necessary for the believer, the one priority that needs to like supersede every other priority is worshiping God in Jesus. Lest you think that Mary's alone in this, listen to what King David said about the one thing the one thing that's most necessary for him, Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And what about the Apostle Paul? Philippians 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. They all agree. Mary 
and David and Paul all agree that the one thing most needful for God's people, the priority that needs to be above all priorities is the earnest pursuit of God as he has revealed himself in Christ. But, friends, this is where we need to get really practical. Because I think all of us who are Christians, we would say that Jesus is our number one priority. Pursuing Jesus and hearing Jesus and worshiping Jesus and spending time with Jesus, like sure. But does your life, as it currently stands, does your life reflect that? Do the choices of your life reflect that? Like Mary has chosen the good portion. Have you chosen that good portion? So for example, does your morning routine reflect that priority, that choice? Does the allocation of your time, how much time you spend doing this versus that, uh, hobbies, interests, the TV, just staring at your phone, whatever it might be, does the allocation of your time reflect that priority, that choice? Or does your involvement in the life of your brothers and sisters, like how you set apart time to encourage and bless and fellowship with the brethren, does that reflect that priority, that choice? How about your church attendance? For the Christian, the weekly gathering of God's people must be a top priority. And yet there are so many, including some of you, who basically come when you can. Like, like when other priorities don't interfere. Does your commitment to worship with the body reflect that priority, that choice? Or maybe you're like Martha. You're just caught up in serving. You're just caught up in trying to do things for the Lord and his people, and that's caused you to become so anxious and troubled that you have completely neglected simply sitting at his feet and listening to his word. I am not trying to breed any unhelpful legalism here. Like, you must spend X minutes, X hours a day communing with the Lord. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that until you've first done this. That's not the intention of this passage at all. But this passage should cause each of us to ask ourselves, like, am I currently, am I choosing the one thing that is most necessary for my soul's greatest joy? That's an important question for us to be asking. Because I'd imagine that for many of us, like, this is not an issue of outright defiance where we say, I am purposely going to deprioritize God. I am purposely going to deprioritize Jesus. I am purposely going to deprioritize the word. I think it's something that kind of just gets lost in the shuffle. It's something that gets overwhelmed by the tyranny of the urgent. It's something that gradually, just over time, drifts to the margins of our life. And so the one thing that's necessary, that we would confess is necessary, just gets drowned in the sea of many things. Brothers and sisters, it is all too easy for us to let the many things of life 
crowd out the one necessary thing. And so perhaps this is a call for you to reprioritize. To pause even today and just take inventory of your life, your your schedule, your, your commitments, your priorities. And just ask yourself, am I anxious and troubled about many things? Or is my life focused on the one thing that's necessary, right? the good portion, Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us for we are an easily distracted people. We are people who easily lose our one priority. We are people who easily just drown in the sea of many things. Father, we pray that you would give us just a heart and a mind that is set on the one thing that is most needful for our souls, which is Christ himself. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.